if you are going to have a moment or something that changes your perspective, you have to have a disruptive conversation. And that disruptive conversation could be internal, it could be external, etc. But I fundamentally believe that we live in a world of stories. You are now listening to We Are Crayons, the podcast. Conversations with Trinidad and Tobago's creative thinkers and makers. We'll delve into their processes, their struggles, and what drives them to execute continually as creative individuals. I'm your host, Dan McNichol. Do enjoy. Today's guest is an innovation and business coach. We'd like to welcome Kita Deming. Kita, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. <laughs> no problem at all, man. So, Kita, just to get started, I like to figure out what got you to this place. And for me to better understand that, I want to ask you, who was Kita Deming as a child? Who was Kita Deming as a child? I was one of those kids who gave a lot of trouble. I didn't do very well in school. I think at some point I went to four different high schools in Trinidad and Tobago for various reasons. I didn't do well in school, so I didn't I didn't find and I, I think the way we educate young people or our population in Trinidad and Tobago doesn't meet the standards of what we have today. So it prepares us for a world that doesn't exist essentially. And I think that was kind of my problem. So I remember there was one teacher who said there was an English class. He reads a lot. So when I give him a general creative writing essay, the content is very good because he's reading more than most people. But he's not interested in reading anything we're assigning. And my mom was like, well, then assign different stuff. That doesn't go over very well in Trinidad. <laughs> so I'd say I wasn't the best in school. I was a very good athlete always. And the key for me has always been having a really supportive family and networking system so that'd be how i describe my childhood did you grow up with siblings or so i had one sibling we are what you call irish twins so we're 13 months apart we're very very different people but growing up we were very close mm-hmm. and we both played a lot of sports like cricket football mm. sprinting track and field and we were always kind of top athletes right so were you doing it at a competitive level my brother was better at swimming so he swam at a competitive level i played football for high schools and for presentation college and Mm -hmm. i played for if you're really into football you know i played savannah football right played for harvard so that kind of thing is how i grew up played rugby did a short stint with rugby for trinidad and tobago so that's kind of where i'm at always had that athletic competitive background actually one of the the defining moments i would say is that i gotten injured playing football Mm -hmm. and I wanted to pick something to stay fit so I decided to play rugby and I'd been playing rugby for about three or four months and some guy came up to me and said hey they're looking at you for the national team but yeah not disciplined enough and it's party too much I was like that's true (laughs) I can't argue that so for the next two months I went and I told my dad I want to make this team Mm -hmm. and I knew the only way to make the team was to be the fittest and fastest person in tryouts so every morning I'd wake up and I'd do what we call repeats. Mm-hmm. And my dad is an ex-sprinter. He was second fastest in England when he was growing up because he grew up in England, Trinidadian, but he grew up in England. And he and I would do drills in the morning before school. And I stopped smoking, stopped drinking. And actually, I lost a lot of friends because all my friends were smoking weed and all that stuff. And right. I stopped that because I wanted to make the team. Mm-hmm. And that has been a really transformative moment for me because I had a goal. I developed a plan to implement on our plan. 
And I will say I barely made that national team. Like, mm. I was on the bench for most of that tour. But I'd only been playing rugby for about four or five months. Right. But I made a decision. I was going to be the fittest, fastest person in the league. In order to do that, I need to stop smoking and do those kind of things. So I, that was a... I think people... I think that's been formative for me because I really believe in what's the objective, what's the goal, what's the vision you're trying to achieve. Right. What's your plan to get you there? And then how you're going to execute. Right. And that has served me well, period. And what age were you at at that point in time to come to that realization? I about 17, I think. Right. And it was drama because all my friends at that point, they were liming and smoking mm-hmm. and stuff. And I stopped liming with them because I was like, look, fellas, what you're all trying to do here is not what I'm trying to do. I'm mm-hmm. trying to do something else. Mm-hmm. So you get teased and soft and, you know, I was like, look, I have a goal. Is my right, goal. Right. And I think I think it was a, that decision was a real pivot point for me. Mm-hmm. And how did you fare after? Well, I guess that's what secondary school. You then went straight into university. How did that go? Hmm. Oh, you have to put this boy. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a straight path. That's for sure. I was in class for A levels. I didn't write A levels, so I had to go to a college to get high school equivalency. Then I went to university. Then I did a master's, and then I did a PhD. So. It wasn't a straightforward path. I was always bright. So, for example, for A-levels, I was studying five subjects for right. A-levels. It was economics, accounting, math, further math, and I think some kind of GP, general paper, writing. And for the first A-levels, I got I had dengue fever for the exams. And the second one, we had a rugby tour. And then by that point, it was just like, you just need to leave. And I was given trouble and that kind of stuff. It wasn't a straightforward path for sure. I didn't right. finish school and I wasn't, that was not me as a student. Right. At some, and, and that was the other thing. I didn't really find subjects I liked mm. until I went to university. When I went to university, I found all these subjects that I thought, wow, where have these subjects been? And I think that's the real downfall of the way our education system is. Mm-hmm. It's a complicated scenario, but I think, and... The challenge is our educational system is phenomenal. It produces phenomenal academics, people who can perform in a particular kind of system. But it leaves too many people behind. And we have to find a way to bring more people along in that journey mm-hmm. over the finish line mm-hmm. in a way that allows them to flourish. If you were to think about it, what do you think needs to happen to make that transition? Hmm. Yeah, it's going to have a question every So within a Caribbean context... A lot of what we have as a culture is a sort of command and control kind of system that comes from colonialism, whether or not we believe it or not. Mm -hmm. So there's a remnant of that. I really believe in setting people free. Give them a loose structure, a loose framework, and set them free. They will create more things than you could ever instruct them to create. Mm. So for example, I build software currently... And with my software team, I never say to them, hey, build this feature. I say, here's the problem we're trying to solve. What's the best way to solve that problem? They will come up with 10 much better ways to solve the problem than me instructing them to do things. In Trinidad, and having worked here, the culture is, you do what I say because I said so. There isn't enough of a, an intellectual banter to try and say, let's raise the level of the game. And I think that starts from our education system, and it it trickles all the way up to the highest echelons, people who become leaders. So because our education system is very good for people who conform, when those people get into leadership positions, they want people who conform. They want people who are sheep. They don't want people who can challenge you. And the distinction here is like, in order for you to have really good ideas, and this is I teach this all the time with my clients, is 
you have to be able to have a battle of ideas, but not a battle with people. Mm. And you have to make that distinction. Mm -hmm. But if you and I can hash out an idea and not make it personal, we could move mountains. Anytime we get personal, it, it becomes a problem. So, so for example, one of my pet peeves in Trinidad is people say that was disrespectful. And usually that means is you said something that challenged a belief I had, therefore it's disrespectful. We have to break down those kind of things mm -hmm. because it becomes a way of like, oh, you just disrespect me. So what? And that could end in fights that could end in like, that goes all kinds of ways. We all, we've all heard that. And that's something that I think we need to get better around conversations and the capacity to have difficult tough conversations apart from coming to the realization that hey this is the goal i want to achieve this is what i'm going to do to achieve it what was it like in the middle there i mean you mentioned you touched briefly on you know your friends teasing you and saying you're soft and and, and whatnot were there other challenges within that this is what i want to do this is where I want to be kind of thing. One of the things I talk about a lot is that I think everybody's having three conversations at one time. Conversation with themselves. Mm -hmm. So internal dialogue. Mm -hmm. A conversation with their inner circle. So their friends, their family, their loved ones. Mm -hmm. And a, f a conversation with community or society or the industry or sector that they're working in. The most difficult conversation there is a conversation with yourself. So in that context, I was constantly... To say no to your friends and tell them, watch my ride out mm -hmm. because I have a purpose and a mission right now mm -hmm. is a very difficult thing to do because you're basically saying to them, right now, we're not friends right. because I have a different purpose. And I think because most people suffer from some kind of imposter syndrome, some kind of insecurity, because the way our world is, it's designed for us to be insecure in some way. I think the hardest piece around that is how do you have the internal courage to say, this is my vision and I go in after that, regardless of whatever obstacles come in my way. I have a plan, but as Mike Tyson said, everybody has a plan until they get hit. When you get a hit, you see that internal dialogue, that is the most difficult one. And then what happens is that you get a hit and then the second dialogue, which is the one with your family and your friends, they say, hey, I tell you not to do that. That creative endeavor you're doing, that innovation you're trying to, I tell you not to do that, you're stupid. Why are you doing that? Then the society or the sector, whoever saying, you are a newcomer, you, you're out of place, you're out of time. And all of those end up being conversations you're having with yourself, the way you begin to doubt your own capacity and ability. And I think people need to understand that. So I really believe in knowing when you're having those three conversations and really focusing on the internal conversation and knowing when you're talking yourself down versus when you're talking yourself up and spend more time talking yourself up. So if I, going back to rugby or whatever, mm -hmm. when I wanted to be faster, I knew I had to go to the gym and do more squats and more legs and all that, right? That's when I was building myself up. But that ends up being painful the next day. You have lactic acid and you, and you had to go and train and your muscles hurting, you're taking ice baths, etc. Nobody talks about that piece. Right. So if you want to know what's difficult, that's what's difficult. What's difficult is dealing with that pain, taking the ice bath, and your best friends on the block liming and smoking, and you you doing that, one am I doing this for? Mm -hmm. Let me go and take a drink, <laughs> you know? But then when you make the team, mm -hmm. and you see that glory, at the end of the day, I could say today, I was part of something that was important at that point in time, because I made certain decisions. Mm -hmm. And even if I didn't make the team, it didn't matter, because I tried. Mm -hmm. And if I almost made that team, mm -hmm. and it would have changed me and made me a better person.
Were there specific steps that you would have taken over the period of time? Because obviously you didn't come to that realization of being, I guess, self-aware. How did you get to that point? So one of the things I think that happens in the world is that we believe that our world, we can reduce them down to things like steps. And because I'm I'm into sports or whatever, I'll use a sports analogy. So... Mm -hmm. As a footballer mm-hmm. or a soccer player, I learn a certain repertoire of moves. But in the game, if I come up to an opponent, I'm never really sure what move I'm going to pull out until I see the opening. Mm. But if I don't have the moves and if I haven't practiced and I haven't done the work, in that moment, I can't do that move, right? That's one. The second piece of that is that when I was playing football at a high level, you got to the point where it was unconscious competence which is that you have learned that move so much that you do it and you don't know how you did it mm-hmm. you got to that stage because you're practicing you did your drills etc mm-hmm. so i think because we have this world where we believe we can reduce things down to this is the cause and this is why this happened right and this is cause and effect when our world is so much more complex than that what is probably likely more true is that there was a portfolio of things that I did at any given time. So there were probably eight or 10 things that I was doing at any point in time. And, and simple things that I can't even attribute to. So my mom's and my parents' support. I had a coach at the time who was instrumental, who was, he was kind of one of them old kind of guys who would kind of pull your square into a and talk to you in the corner and really keep your focus on that goal. Mm-hmm. I had another coach at Harvard. I remember him telling me I got, I was actually home today watching a, a trophy that said most disciplined player. Mm-hmm. And he was kind of pivotal in that. And I remember him having a conversation with me. I remember you as a very disciplined player. As you've gotten older, you've lost that discipline. You need to find that discipline. So I think all those things contributed. Mm-hmm. But for me to then go and attribute this thing is what led me to this. I I can't I can't do this step right. to this step. Right. I really believe in moves. Right. So life is a collection of moves. So let's bring as many moves as possible. You practice, practice, practice those moves. And when you first practicing move, it's unconscious incompetence, conscious incompetence. And you have to figure out those, you have to move through that. And then you get to the stage where you're doing that move without even thinking and you do move and you don't know how you did that. But unless you develop that breath, that depth and breath, I think it's very difficult to be able to survive in this world because, because, because nothing we do is like linear. So nothing we do is straight if X, then Y. It's more dynamic than that. So I can't say to you, this would happen. But what I know is that I was focusing on, I had one question in mind. Is this what I'm doing right now helping me become a better person? The answer to that was no, I just didn't do it. Right. That's yeah. That was what I did. The key part about that was that even when I went to party, I would go and party, I'm like, this is helping me become better because I'm relaxing. And that was a really important thing to know how to take time off mm-hmm. efficiently because I it's very easy for me to be driven and work 24-7. I could do that easy. But one of the things I've learned is learning in order for me to be a better person, I need to take time off. I need to try and exercise. I need to, you know what I mean? I don't know if that's the answer to the yeah, question. Yeah, I think, I think you did because so what I'm pulling out of that is your ability to make decisions based on what your goal was, i.e. is smoking now when I have a game over the weekend going to make help me win that game or perform better? No, yes or no? And you were able to say no. 
and then that helped make the decision. Yeah, so I think I think it's like making those it's it's the small decisions Correct. every day yep. that transforms who you are. Yes, on the big scale, yeah. right? And I think that's what it was. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and you had that clarity till now. So it's clarity plus that ability to make those decisions, those small decisions that would have helped build something bigger. Yeah, so you have, this is something we teach clients all the time as well. So you have your goal and most of us have an intention to prove, to to achieve that goal. Mm -hmm. Very few of us have a real detailed plan or idea about how we going to get from A to B. Mm-hmm. We have a desire to do this thing. And five years later, we've never accomplished this thing because mm-hmm. all we've ever had was an intention. Mm-hmm. We never put it to pen to paper mm-hmm. and think, this is how I'm going to implement this, even if it's imperfect. For example, if the objective of the first draft of a book is not for it to be perfect, it's to finish the first draft. Mm-hmm. That's the objective. After that, you're then improving. Again, let's go back to education. Education sort of teaches us to execute this perfect finished product mm-hmm. because that's what you can be graded on mm-hmm. so it's very hard for us to put out an incomplete product because we know we're going to be graded on it mm-hmm. so for some of us that's very difficult and actually that's one of the challenges i've really struggled with how do i put out work that i know can be better but i have to start putting it out and i that was a really hard thing for me to do one of the things i do is i do tedx and kim johnson taught me this lesson that i thought was phenomenal in steel pan mm-hmm. there's no other space i can think of or i know of where you could go and watch the musician, the artist, whomever practice. In football, you could go and watch Chelsea practice. You could go and, yeah. But in a theater show, nobody shows you, hey, look, we were practicing these lines. That doesn't happen. A musical performance, a symphony or whatever, they don't say, hey, come and watch us play some bad notes and stuff like that. In Steel Pan, you go and you go to a pan yard and they will be repeating a chord. 20, 30, 40 times, and people sitting on there watching them practice the chords. Kim Johnson, that was that blew my mind. That simple thing blew my mind. The lesson I took from that is what we see is the finished product, and we don't see the dedication and the discipline that goes into producing that final product. Because I don't know, I've had this experience. I go in a panier and I watch them play. And when I watch them play finals night, it's a whole different game. Because all I watch him play is one chord. Or four months before, three months before Carnival, you play, they play in a piece, you can barely recognize it. Then you watch a transition, and then about a week or two weeks before, you, hey, that song is sweet. But that journey was long and late hours and mm-hmm. discipline mm-hmm. and repetition and stuff like that. Not a lot of us spend enough time in that space. Mm-hmm. What does creativity mean to you? So I, I am an academic, right? right. So once, once you ask me, what does creativity mean to me? I, I will give you the definitions. So Teresa Marble is one of my favorite authors, creativity author, Harvard professor, etc. And she defines creativity as novelty that works. So creativity to me is quite simply novelty that works. The reason that definition is so important to me is that I have never considered myself a creative. Mm-hmm. Even to this day, I still don't really consider myself a creative. But every day, I work in organizations that help them develop new business models. That is a creative endeavor. I have done all kinds of things, like with companies, with my when I did my thesis, all that. There's a whole bunch of creativity that happens there. So to me, creativity is novelty that works. All right, so Kita, tell me about your podcast. I started my podcast because when I was doing my PhD, I wanted to do a project where I'd interview 25 to 50 people who were disruptive, people who were trying to make big things happen. And I couldn't get it approved through my committee, etc. So I did another PhD, which I loved. It was good. 
But when I finished my PhD, I decided, you know what, I could do this project and it doesn't have to be follow the academic rigor of all the issues that would have come up. I don't even have to deal with it. So I just have been interviewing people who are trying to disrupt a sector or system. I've interviewed about 120 people. I've only published 80 episodes mm. of those. And from that, I've learned a lot around how do you have disruptive conversations or how do people disrupt sectors and systems? The reason I call the podcast Disruptive Conversations has nothing to do with disruptive innovation. It's more because when I was doing my thesis, I came across some literature that changed how I understood organizations forever. Historically, we've understood organizations as machines, as cogs as we use these metaphors and as the dominant management literature talks about efficiency effectiveness leveraging pulling etc mm -hmm. comes from a very mechanical reductionist scientific kind of background and these authors really changed that for me and they said organizations are nothing like machines organizations are conversations and if you change your conversation in an organization you change or transform the organization. And ever since then, I've been on this quest to understand how do you use conversations to transform organizations? Nice. So I call my podcast Disruptive Conversations because I feel like if you are going to have a moment or something that changes your perspective, mm -hmm. you have to have a disruptive conversation. Right. And that disruptive conversation could be internal, it could be external, be with somebody else, it right. could be with yourself, it could be reading a book, etc. But I fundamentally believe that we live in a world of stories stories we tell ourselves and the best example of that actually is people talk about this is my truth this is my story but truth is very different from your story so there are facts that we can pull out of that story and that would be truth but it is your story and those stories influence how you move and operate in the world and i do feel like if you are able to change the stories people tell about themselves change the kinds of conversations people have it can be absolutely transformative. And we've lost that art for conversation and dialogue. And my evidence does point to social media. We have no idea how to have conversations yeah. anymore. Far less to have conversations in person. And people are too easily offended. People have way too idealistic ideas around things in general. People feel like you're entitled to an opinion. You're not. My opinion is my opinion, but opinion is not truth. An opinion is exactly that's an opinion. So we have lost this art to have conversation and much of my work has been introducing useful conversations into companies. And we have frameworks and we work with a lot of people to think about how do people have dialogues that spur on change mm -hmm. or innovation. So for example, in sales conversations, if I'm able to master the conversation environment and the way I have a sales conversation, it can turn my business around fundamentally. If I can master conversations within a teaming environment, it changes the way our team performs. So for me, it all comes down to conversations. How do we, what are the things we're saying and doing and how do we do that in a useful, effective manner? Mm -hmm. So a lot of my work comes down to working with companies to have useful conversations that help them achieve the goals and mission that they're trying to achieve. I would want to bring in now TEDx into that because it's along the same vein of conversations, would you say? For people who don't know, TEDx is, let's call it a franchise of TED.com. And TED.com is a organization that is whose mission is ideas worth spreading. And I first came across TEDx when I was at university 
where they had Ted gives people licenses to run a Ted-like event under their brand. So the Ted brand is called Ted. And if you're running one of these licensed brands, you're called a TEDx. And the X signifies independently organized. And when I was at university, I saw one of these events. And I was like, this thing could transform my country. And I, I knew I was bringing TEDx to Trinidad at some point. At the same time, I was finishing, I was in my undergrad. I went and did my master's. And when I came back to Trinidad, I started TEDx. And again, it started from a pain point. My pain point was I just started doing consulting work, et cetera, and working in the space in Trinidad. And they kept hiring foreign consultants to do work that local consultants can do. And that was pissing me off. Hell no high water. So then I decided, you know what? Let's do TEDx and highlight the local talent we have and show people that this country is talented and we don't need to be hiring these foreign experts. And going back off of that theme of organizations or conversations, and I fundamentally believe that we don't do anything without conversations. We, everything we happen is through conversations, conversations in medium. The first TEDx podcast where we had was called Changing Conversations. And that's been a theme throughout TEDx podcast. It's been a theme throughout my life. Everything I do, it's about how do we change conversations, the kinds of conversations we have. Because if we keep telling the same stories and we keep having the same conversations, nothing changes. So that's that's how we started TEDx. And we're about to be in the annoying. It's like if, if you told me, hey, you would have done nine editions of TEDx, you would have had X number of speakers, you have three million views online, you have be like we are rated in the top 1% of TEDx events around the world. So we've had a lot of success with TEDx, but we haven't had, I don't think we've had the corporate pickup or the government pickup we wanted it to. We get ignored, but people who come to TEDx love TEDx events. And people, one person tells me they come to TEDx because it's the way they get energy for the rest of the year. And we work really hard with our speakers and make sure that A, all of our speakers are, we don't sell the stage. So you can't buy a spot. Like it, right. it, we really curate who speaks at TEDx Postman, which is a really difficult thing to do because mm-hmm. a lot of people want to speak. We have like a long list of people who want to speak, but we're always thinking, okay, what's the best thing for the audience? What does the audience want to hear? Mm-hmm. And being that focused is, is really, really interesting. So and one of our challenges is we try not to choose people who already have a big stage, but that makes the event harder to sell. Because people who have a big name, they attract a lot of people. But then there are people who are just under the radar doing amazing work that we try to give them a stage. So we try to do that balance of, and it's a difficult thing because a lot of people want to speak. They have great ideas, et cetera. But at the end of the day, we have to choose 11 speakers. Mm-hmm. And choosing 11 speakers becomes very difficult at some point. So it's, it, that's TEDx Postman. It's, it's been a great journey so far. Mm-hmm. Would you say you've made any significant sacrifice on your journey to getting to where you are now? And think about, okay, have I made sacrifice to be where I am now? I think my greatest work is ahead of me. I don't think I've come anywhere near mm-hmm. to producing the greatest work I want to produce. So the way you think about sacrifice, I think the answer to that depends. So I spent five years doing a PhD. Mm-hmm. In that five years, I would have foregone a salary and going up a career ladder. Was that a sacrifice? I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I knew in that those five years, I got to learn a lot of skills and etc. I got to understand 
conversational theory, management theory, complexity theory, and how to apply that in organizations. Mm. Today, I get to work in a way that I love. I love my job. I love everything I do about it, etc. Mm-hmm. So was that a sacrifice? I don't know. So mm-hmm. let's go back to when I was training for rugby, waking up at five o'clock every morning, training, etc. Is that sacrifice? Mm. I don't know if that's sacrifice. I think that is putting in the legwork for the work that you want to do for mm-hmm. you to achieve your goal. If you play poker, there's something called sta- table stakes. Mm-hmm. To get into any industry, any sector, anything, you have to at least do table stakes. So if you want to run the Boston Marathon, you have to run a particular time in order to qualify for the Boston Marathon. The table stakes is you running that particular time mm-hmm. in the marathon. That's the table stakes. That's what you have to do. Did you sacrifice the work to get in to do that? No, because your goal is to run the Boston Marathon. Mm-hmm. So we have to really rethink what do we mean by sacrifice? Mm-hmm. Nothing in this life comes easy. And I I get really perturbed when people say, there's nothing out there for me. We need to do more. We need to, people need to create more opportunities for us, etc. I think that's true on some level. But if there are no opportunities, you have to go out there and make your opportunities, period. Mm-hmm. Anytime you say, hey, that person out there is the reason I'm not doing well. You need to understand that there are four fingers pointing back to you and you are part of why you're not doing well. One, I will be the first person to admit that the environment plays a major contributing factor Mm -hmm. to your success. I'll be the first person to say that. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying the environment doesn't play a factor, but I'm saying in your your life, when you find yourself blaming external, Mm -hmm. that is usually a cue that you need to have an internal conversation with yourself about how do you improve mm. and i'll tell you i'll give you how i when i first came up with this epiphany i was an undergraduate and i wasn't doing well in a psychology class and i was sitting with a group of people who they were complaining about the teacher he didn't teach us in class he don't like us mm. etc and i was quietly sitting there went back to the library and i looked at the exam and i looked at everything in the textbook every single question he asked was in the textbook mm. it wasn't in the lectures that he took but it was in the textbook and i decided I feel that exam because I feel that exam. Mm-hmm. I did not read the textbook. I didn't take good notes, etc. The next time I took an exam, I got an 85 because I read every single page in the textbook and I knew. So I knew there was nothing he could bring because I read the textbook cover to cover. Mm-hmm. And it was my fault that I didn't pass the exam. Once you take radical ownership like that, there's very few things that could come your way because I hate to say this, but most people are performing at average. And by definition, most people are performing at average. That's by definition. Mm -hmm. So if you want to be a high performer, you have to do the extra things that get you to be in the top 10, 5, 2, 1%. -hmm. You have to put in that legwork. That is not a sacrifice. Mm -hmm. That is you putting in the work to be the best in the game. Mm -hmm. So becoming so good that the only person they would even think to call Mm -hmm. is you. Because there are people who sing on the side of the road for shillings and pennies, etc. You go to Madison Square Gardens, you go to um, anywhere in London or whatever, there are people who are singing there. Are they any less talented than the people who, than the Jay-Z's, the Beyonce's, etc. Mm. of this world? In every sector, there are people who are struggling to survive and there are people who are just at the top of their game. Right. Continuing to say, hey, this person didn't do it for me, etc., puts your destiny in somebody else's hand for sure and i fully caveat this by saying i think environment plays a major role and there are systemic reasons people don't succeed i'll be the first time in that mm-hmm. but i think there's a piece where at some point the ownership and the accountability is on you mm-hmm. and your success is in your hands mm-hmm.
Wow. So, Kita, then, if I were to give you a billboard, prominently displayed, you had one message to put on it. What would that message be? So, if I could put one thing on a billboard and today, and it's just because it's a quote that I heard recently, and it's really stood out for me. It hit me like a ton of bricks. It's by a guy called Jonathan Rosen, and he's sort of a philosopher kind of person. And he said, enlightenment is your ego's biggest disappointment. And that stood out for me in a number of ways because there are things that you learn that point the finger back to you that, hey, you weren't doing this well enough or you needed to step up your game in a bit. And when you get that enlightenment moment, it's a blow to your ego. And if we are able to really embrace that enlightenment piece and get ego out of the way, I think we can do a lot more Mm-hmm. than we do in our everyday society. So mm-hmm. it's about working hard to get get the ego out of the picture, having that internal conversation. Mm-hmm. What has helped you persevere thus far? I think what has really helped me is that somewhere along the way, I came to really believe in community and villages. So the first company I ever formed was called Village Seed Solutions. And I did some work under that banner, etc. because I really believed... It takes a village to raise a child, it takes a village to raise an artist, it takes a village to raise an entrepreneur. We all need villages around us. And one of the things that I've been able to do, and somebody has pointed this out to me and I didn't know this, is that I'm very good at creating community. Mm. So one of the things we did when I was in my PhD was I had a bi-weekly meeting of people who would study something called Systems thinking, design thinking, integrative thinking, and evaluative thinking. And we came up with models and frameworks, and we studied this every two weeks. There's a group of professionals, teachers, academics, etc. And we came together, and we basically had a working group mm. for about five years, thinking about how do we yeah. use all these methodologies and put them into community. Right. Right now, I'm doing quite a lot of coaching, and I'm about to start a group of people who want to be much better coaches, and we're using a particularly particular coaching framework to become better coaches. I naturally do that there's something in me that says hey let's bring people together and do a community around us and is we curate that community and it's only serious people Mm -hmm. people who have a similar thinking around quality etc so i think for me you gain resilience and you gain perseverance by having a strong community of people around you as you mentioned having a mentor then you mentioned you know your coach So all of those things, I guess, would have counted as your community coming up. Yeah, like I have, like my grandmother, she's 94 now, but she was wise. My grandfather too, they were both wise, Mm. wise, wise people. And I had them for counsel. I have, so professionally right now, I'm often the youngest person in the room. Mm. I'm working with people who are usually 65 plus. Those people are my mentors and they're coaching me and saying, hey, we believe in you and we think you can be an amazing business coach and innovation coach. And I'm the opening doors and all of that. And I don't think that that you get anywhere in life without a mentor or coach. I fundamentally believe that. So I often tell the story of Wayne Van Niekert. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of him? No, never. So I think Wayne Van Niekert has run the greatest race we will ever see in history. Wayne Van Niekert ran a 400-meter race in the Olympics. And I've never looked into it, but I'm not sure how he ended up there, but he was in the eighth lane. I used to sprint. So I watched the Olympics, the running, track and free. I love it. He was in the eighth lane and he broke Michael Johnson's record 
running in the eighth lane. And I thought that is absolutely incredible mm. because most people who run in the eighth lane, when you hit the third bend, that last bend, what happens is the playing field levels out and all of a sudden you're last. Yeah. You went for, you go from first to last. That guy basically ran in the eighth lane and ran the race by himself. Mm-hmm. He was out front the entire race. That means he saw nobody for the entire race. And he broke Michael Johnson's record. I think that record was standing for about 10 or 12 years. Mm. It's one of the best races you ever see. So how did he, how was he able to do that kind of high-level performance? That is a high-stakes scenario. Where did that performance come from? Mm-hmm. So what I did is I'm like, okay, well, one thing I did was I looked at when last did somebody win the 400 meters in the Olympics in the eighth lane. Right. It had like something like 14 Olympics since somebody had done that. Right. 14 by four, right? <laughs> so you're looking yeah. at uh, it's been a long time since yeah. somebody did that because it's such a hard thing, thing to, do. to do. Most people, mm-hmm. it doesn't happen very often. So that's why I'm like, this man ran a great race. So I looked at his coach. Who's his coach? His coach is a woman called ANS Bolt or Holt or something like that. I mm. think she was a South African woman who used to run herself. She has never won the Olympics, mm. but she's a phenomenal coach. And she started coaching when she was really young and she really loves coaching young people. And she became this high performing coach and she's known for turning athletes around. In fact, Wayne Van Nika was running 200 and she convinced him to run the four. Mm. And then by running the four, that's how he ended up breaking that record. Right. So that coach never won the Olympics. You take Usain Bolt. Usain Bolt's coach is phenomenal as well. Usain Bolt used to run the 400 meters and then they convinced him to run the 100. He became the world's greatest sprinter, Barnan. His coach has never won the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Serena Williams, her coach has never won Wimbledon, right? So I fundamentally believe that people need to have coaches, but our biases that we think that people who won the Olympics, who've done it before, etc., are the best coaches. And if you look are the best athletes in the world. They have the best coaches. Their coaches may not have done what they're trying to do, Mm. but they're phenomenal coaches. And I really believe everybody needs a mentor and everybody needs a coach. And be very careful about who you get advice from. Know that they have your best interest in heart and they don't necessarily need to have done what you're trying to do, but they need to be a coach who's who's able to get the best out of you Mm -hmm. and be able to give you perspective on perspective because once we're mired in our own world we can't see the mistakes we're 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 making we can't see our biases i'll give you an example i had a client recently she would run into problems her company is growing really quickly and i said i've noticed a pattern in the way you hire people you tend to hire your friends and she said yeah because it's just easier and faster i was like okay so let's look at the last three times you hired friends and how did that turn out bam 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 didn't turn out well And I made the point that there's a massive distinction between a team and a family. When you're building a company, you're building a team. The best team is on the playing field. You have a family of people who might be supporting a company and they're around, but they're not on the playing field. They haven't made the grade. They're not fit enough, etc. And when you're building a company, you build a team. You don't build family. That advice has transformed her company. When she's thinking about hiring people she's thinking about okay who's the best person for this position versus who do i know who can fill this role mm-hmm. that changes her gaze completely it means she looks in different places she looks at different things etc and it's transformed her company i do think perspective on perspective i fundamentally believe in i think everybody needs a coach and i think everybody needs a mentor mm-hmm. none of us go through this life without help mm-hmm. we all have people along the way who are helping us along this journey in fact 
my definition of organization is when two people come together to achieve some kind of goal. You immediately have an organization, whether it's like nonprofit, whether it's to go to a line, whether it's like wherever it is, whether it's a family gathering, wherever you've just created an organization where mm-hmm. people have delegated roles, tasks, and functions. You've just created a mini organization, mm-hmm. and nobody does anything in this world without help or without mm-hmm. other people. You have to work with other people. Having the right coach and the right mentor. Somebody who's skilled, somebody who's skilled at coaching, not necessarily skilled at what you're trying to do, especially if you're trying to do something that has never been done before. Mm-hmm. It's just not possible to get a coach to do that, right? But having somebody who has the skills around coaching and mentoring, I fundamentally believe, is incredibly transformative. At the end of the day, what would Keita Deming like to be remembered for? You know, I, I've always said I want people to know where I stood and that I was always honest and straightforward with people. Mm-hmm. It's very simple. I'm not interested in games. I'm not interested in any of that nonsense. Mm-hmm. I want to be remembered as somebody who you always knew where he stood on a particular issue, whether it was small or big, etc. I'm very prepared to have difficult conversations. Mm-hmm. I can say anything as long as I say it kindly. So I think I want to be remembered as somebody who he was always honest he was always straightforward. You always knew where he stood, and that made it easy for me to work with him. That's how I'd want to be remembered. So on that note, Kita, I didn't want to thank you for your time. What I took away from the conversation was, one, make sure you have clarity of purpose. You identify your goal and identify how you're going to achieve that goal. And then by doing that, surround yourself with that community, surround yourself with that coach, with that mentor that would help you achieve the things that you want to achieve. That's a that's an excellent summary. My current mentor and coach is a guy by the name of Norm Trainer. Mm-hmm. And he says, you have to do it yourself, but you can't do it alone. Mm, that's powerful. And it's essentially whether you're building a village, whether you it's it's all about how do you have the right team on the boat and you're charging forward. That that's it's fundamentally about that. Kita, uh before we wrap up, can you tell the audience where they can find you? So you can find me at kitademing.com or you can find me at the Covenant Group and the website is covenantgroup.com. But if you Google me, you can find me on Twitter, you can find me on Instagram or wherever. And I generally am looking for people who want to create beautiful organizations where people are very interested in high performance. All those links will be in the show notes. Again, Kita, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Hi, I'm Kita Deming, and in a big box of crayons, I would be useful conversations. Please share this episode with someone who would find it valuable. And if you haven't yet, subscribe to the show now on Apple Podcasts to get new episodes as they become available. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. It will help us reach other listeners just like you. Find additional content on abigboxofcrayons.com. Follow us on Instagram at abigboxofcrayons. The We Are Crayons podcast is a production of A Big Box of Crayons. All rights reserved. Until next time, friends, remember... We are all the same in the fact that we will never be the same. Stay colorful and thank you for listening.